All right, why don't you go and grab one of those pew Bibles in front of you if you don't have your own Bible and open up there to Acts 16 so you can follow along. We'll be pointing out hopefully some certain parts here in the text. And let me just say for the record, this morning when I opened that psalm for our pastoral prayer, I did not expect it to say that the Lord sends his icy blast with all this weather. I literally, I literally like laughed to myself in my office like a madman. When I, uh, when I saw that, I thought it was funny. Anyways, if there's any kids ages three through second grade, they can meet uh, Miss Margie in the back for children's sermon time as we get into this text. But I'm excited to start out the sermon series in Philippians with you. And I, uh, I had Don ask me the question this morning, which I thought was a very relevant question. Why are we looking at Acts if we're starting a sermon series in Philippians? I'm going to leave you on the edge of your seats for just like two more minutes. But let's pray, and then we will uh, look at what God's word has for us. So, Father... We are grateful to be able to come before you this morning and hear the words that you have spoken to us. We pray, Lord, that as we look at this text, as we consider what it has for us, that you might move in our hearts, that you would convict us where necessary and encourage us where necessary. Lord, we pray that ultimately in all of this, that you would be glorified, that this time would be about you. So Lord, have your way among us, move about us by your spirit and draw us to your son, Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. All right, well, as I said, today we are starting uh, our new sermon series on the book of Philippians, and this is going to last us all the way till about June, uh, with the exception of a pretty short break uh, during the Easter season. And as John and I were talking about this, one of the things that's come up is we want to really uh, walk this balance between really getting out our magnifying glasses and diving deeply verse by verse into the book of Philippians. And on the other hand, we're balancing, okay, what does it look like to, to read this letter that was meant to be read in maybe a little bit larger chunks? Maybe like when you were here for our uh, Exodus sermon series, we read some larger portions of scripture uh, in context. And so we're gonna try and walk that balance well as we sip and savor what this book has for us. So we're gonna take our time through it, but try and do it in the most helpful way where we're getting the, the big picture of what is being communicated to us. And we're excited about Philippians specifically because we think that this book answers some, some pretty relevant questions that many of us are asking in our day and age. Now, the scriptures certainly do that uh, far and beyond what we would see even Philippians all the way across it. But Philippians specifically answers some really, really good ones for us. It answers things like, how can we find a secure identity that's rooted in something bigger than ourselves? It answers, how, how can we love one another well amidst real differences? As I think about that, that is just prime in our culture and context with how polarized things tend to be. It answers, how, how can we experience joy and suffering and difficulty? I know there's people in our church family and, and, and at large in our spheres of influence who are really facing challenges. And the book of Philippians speaks to this and what it looks like for us to participate in Christ's sufferings as we get into that letter. It also answers, how, how can we experience contentment with what we have? Right? Philippians has the, the cliche verse, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. We'll be considering what that really means in context and what it means for us to, to be content no matter where God has us and what we are undergoing. So we're excited about this. And, and the thing is this, no matter who you are, no matter whether you're a Jesus follower or not, whether you're watching online or in person here today, we all seek out answers to these questions in one way or another. 
And we go to different things and to different people in order to answer those questions. And John and I are, are thoroughly convinced that, that the Bible's answer to these questions that we specifically see in the book of Philippians is extremely compelling. And so we're looking forward to diving into this. Now, we're going to explore Philippians as a letter in the weeks to come. But let me answer this question now. Why are we starting out in the book of Acts? Well, Philippians, at its heart, is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And Philippi, specifically, is a Macedonian city. But but what we find when we look at the book of Acts is that it actually recounts how that church actually began. It's, it's one of the few churches that we find in the New Testament letters that we actually have an account of how that community came to be. And so we figure that before we actually start in on reading the letter, we might as well look at, okay, how did the church in Philippi actually get started? And what we see is that the gospel really takes root through the, like, this amazing work of God in this city. So we're going to look at it by, by considering uh, the power of God in four different ways. You might think of it as four different portraits, but we see God moving in four different ways. The first way is this. We see the power of God to regenerate the heart. So the text tells us this, that Paul goes outside the city on a Sabbath for what we might call like a, a prayer meeting. See, the city of Philippi was a Gentile predominant city. And because it was highly nationalistic in the Roman way of life, the chances are that it probably did not uh, have a large synagogue, if a synagogue at all. So if you're Paul or Silas, uh, or you're some of other Paul's co-workers, and you're trying to gather with other Jewish individuals, where do you go? Apparently it says that they were going out by the riverside to have this prayer meeting. And what we find when Paul goes out there is there's a number of women who he ends up in conversation with, one of them specifically is named Lydia. And Lydia really stands out here when it comes to the Philippian church. We learn a couple things about her. The first thing we learn is that she is a wealthy business owner. The text said that she deals in a purple cloth. And if we hear that in our context, we might think, okay, what, you know, she, she sells things that are purple. But what we have to recognize is that in the ancient world, uh, dye was not as, as readily available. You had to go to great lengths in order to have uh, extreme vibrant colors in your clothing. And so specifically for, for Lydia dealing in purple, the way that they would get this purple dye is you would actually, I would, I'll use the word harvest it, you would harvest it from a rare shellfish. And so it actually took quite a bit of work in order to get this dye, and it was actually quite expensive to sell. So what does this tell us? It tells us that Lydia deals essentially in high-end luxury clothing. Okay, she, she, is, she is quite uh, financially well, uh, well along here. So she sells this. Uh, she is from Thyatira, and Paul runs into her, and we find out that she has money. The second thing that we find about her is that she is a God-fearer. The text says specifically uh, that she was a worshiper of God. If you look at verse 14, uh, one of those listening was a woman of the city of Thyatira named Lydia, dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. Now, a worshiper of God is a, a technical word for what we would call a God-fearer. And a God-fearer is someone uh, more than someone that's just afraid of God. What a God-fearer is, is actually a Gentile 
who has a strong appreciation for the Jewish way of life and for the God of Israel. So they would participate in Jewish customs and the Jewish way of life, but they hadn't gone all the way to becoming a Jewish convert or proselyte. So what did they call them? They called them a God-fear. So it was essentially a Gentile person, person who really appreciated the Jewish way of life. And what we see happens is Paul ends up in this conversation with her and God opens her heart to respond to the message of the gospel. That's what it says later in verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And this is very, very significant because we're looking at this and we're thinking about, okay, the, the idea of evangelism, the idea of sharing the gospel with people. I think it's easy for us to get wrapped up in the, this idea of, of methods or what I'm going to say to this person or how they're going to respond when I proclaim the gospel to them or will I say the right thing or am I going to end up in this hostile conversation or have to answer questions that I don't have answers to. But what we see here is something different. We see that although Paul played a part, it is extremely clear that this was God's work. This was not predominantly Paul's work. It was God moving in Lydia as Paul proclaimed the, the gospel to her. That's what we see constantly throughout the New Testament. This is what we see throughout scripture as a whole, that the work of God to draw people to himself, to draw them to a saving relationship with him is his work. It is not our work. We just participate and are sometimes the means by which he ends up changing those hearts. And so that's exactly what we see here with Paul and Lydia. It's not about the evangelistic methods. It is about the spirit's power. And here we see the power of God to regenerate her heart. Here's the second way we see the power of God. To liberate from oppression. To liberate from oppression. The text starting in verse 16 goes on to tell us that an, on another occasion when they're going to pray uh, with the, this group of, of Jewish individuals, there's actually a slave girl that, that comes, about, uh, comes about who is possessed by a demon. This is what the text says. She's a slave girl and she's oppressed by a demon. But she's not just any slave girl. The fact that she's oppressed by a demon ends up with the scenario where she has the supernatural ability to divine the future. She is able to tell people what is going to happen. And, and the result of this, the, the result of her oppression, the result of this dark, dark situation is that her masters are actually exploiting her financially. They're taking her about and she is, she is telling the future and they're actually making money off of it. It's this horrible situation for her. And, and what happens is she's, she's following along with Paul and his coworkers, and she, she recognizes, possessed by this demon, that they are coming in the name of the Most High God. They're coming in the name of Jesus. And Paul gets so frustrated with her following them around that he turns around and he says, in the name of Jesus, and he casts out the demon from this girl. We see this crazy moment where she experiences the power of God, but in a different way than Lydia did. We see that where Lydia had her heart open to receive the gospel, we see with, with this girl that she is freed from her oppression by the power of Christ. And this is where it's worth just recognizing the implications of the power of God in our world and in our culture that go beyond us. Because what's going on here is more than just an exorcism when we think about the implications of it. There is definitely spiritual significance going on in this text, but it is definitely more than that. And here's why. Because she's under the demon oppression, 
which leads to her being able to tell the future, which leads to her being exploited financially. But now the demon is gone, which means she can no longer tell the future, which means that her masters no longer have that way of exploiting her for financial gain. So we see, yes, the power of God is impacting her on a deep personal level, but it's actually starting to make its way out into her relationships and to the culture at large where where the power of Christ is actually changing the spheres of influence of this girl. The power of God is actually freeing her, not just from sin, but from the oppression and the exploitation of those around her. It's amazing. The third way we see the power of God is through a transformed life. See, the power of God through a transformed life. Now, the, the, the story continues kind of in a way that we might expect, actually. So the girl has the demon cast out of her. She can't tell the future. Her masters can't exploit her financially. So obviously, they are not super thrilled about that idea, that they are out of this business that they once had by exploiting this girl. And so they, they take Paul and Silas and they bring them before the city officials. And they say, these are Jewish individuals. They are ruining the, the Roman way of life by, by their religious practice. You need to do something about this. So they come before the city officials and what happens? They're stripped down, they're beaten, and they're thrown in jail. So they're imprisoned and they are tortured, essentially what happens. And I just want to just point something out as a side note for a second. That this next person that we're about to meet would not have been encountered if it wasn't for them undergoing that suffering. We need to recognize that sometimes God uses persecution and suffering in order to press along his plans and purposes. So they're stripped and they're beaten and they're jailed. Some of this will come up when we get into the book of Philippians. Paul speaks firsthand when he's writing to the church in Philippi later about participating in the suffering of Christ. And it's through this suffering that they experience here that we meet the Philippian jailer. They're in jail. They meet the jailer. What do we know about the jailer? Well, we know that he's battle tested. We know that he is a hardened soldier. How do we know that? Well, as I said, city of Philippi, a, a pretty nationalistic, uh, super, uh, we'll say it's the super Roman city. Augustus actually uh, started this city in order to give military veterans a place to go and retire and a place to call home once they had, had left their military service. And so when we're meeting this jailer, the, the, there's a high percentage that he is actually a former military officer or someone who had fil- uh, formerly served in the military who's kind of settling into his cushy retirement job where he is going to settle down. So he cares very deeply about honor and about the Roman way of life. And what happens is, is this actually comes to bite him later on here because we see that there's an earthquake. It shakes the foundations of the jail And Paul and Silas and the other prisoners, they actually go free. And because this jailer cares so much about the Roman way of life, he actually tries to commit suicide. Now you might say, okay, how do those two things go together? In, in Roman culture, if you were responsible for keeping watch over somebody, if you were uh, responsible for guarding somebody in prison, and that person uh, got away, if, if you left your post, or if for some reason they were able to escape your watch, then the result of that uh, was that you were killed. It, you, were, you were executed. So instead of suffering the shame of being killed, 
uh, for failing to do his job and probably actually reflecting that shame back onto any family that he might have had. He says, no, I am going to take things into my own hands and I am going to end my life. But what we see here is something very interesting. We see that Paul and Silas, they do not leave. They don't flee. They don't take off and say, okay, you just deal with the consequences. You guys jailed me uh, unjustly, even though I'm a Roman citizen. He He doesn't leave this guy to end his own life. They actually stick by him. Look what they say in verses, uh, in verse 28. We'll start in verse 27. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and uh, was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the result of this is crazy. The result of this is, is amazing. We see the power of God working through a transformed life. And when I say that, here, here's what I don't mean. I'm not talking about the jailer's transformed life. I'm talking about Paul and Silas, that the work that God had done in them to prepare them for this moment had a severe impact on this man. Note with me for a second that the text does not say that the earthquake was a miracle. I think sometimes we read that and we're like, oh, God shook the, the jail shell, cell. This is a miracle. He did this in order to free the prisoners. That's not what the text says. And historically, what we actually know is that uh, during this time and in this area, it wasn't actually that uncommon for there to be earthquakes. So we're not actually seeing a miracle. We're actually seeing, now, we believe God is sovereign. We're seeing him do something, but not something out of the ordinary for what, it, what would happen. What is actually miraculous in the text, though, and, and profound is not the earthquake, but the impact that Paul and Silas sticking around and being willing to stick by this guy actually has on his life. We see that the jailer had never seen mercy like this before. Remember, he's battle-hardened. He's about honor. He is about duty. He is about following through with the consequences. So if you let the people go free, that's the end of your life. But that's not what we see happening. We see that Paul and Silas extend this amazing amount of mercy. They stick with him. And because of that, their lives were different. Their lives were compelling. They could have escaped but we start to see this Christ-like pattern in them. We start to see that what Jesus had done in them had impacted them to the degree where they were starting to embody it because they are willing to risk their lives and lay their lives down by staying there in order to save the life of this jailer. You see the Christ-like pattern going on. They're laying down their preferences. They're laying down what they could be doing humbling themselves, if you will, a theme that will come up in the book of Philippians, in order to save this man's life. And this willingness on their part leads them, or leads him to this question, what must I do to be saved? And what do they say? Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Now, a lot of Acts tends to summarize some of these speeches and, and lines with, with some of the apostles. So they probably said something more of that. And I would imagine they said something more along the lines of believe in Jesus and you will be saved, the one who laid down his life for us. That's why we're laying our lives down for you. The final way that we see the power of God in this text is in the power of God to turn strangers into family. When we look at this text, we have to realize kind of why it is fit in this place and in this way into the book of Acts. And it's because we're not only supposed to look at the stories of these people individually, but we're supposed to look at them together. We're supposed to consider how they fit together corporately. 
Acts 16 tells us how this church in, in Philippi was born. And I think that Luke intentionally includes the stories of these individuals for a specific reason. And I think it's to show us just how diverse this church was. Just how unique each individual that was part of this church family was when they go together. Just, just look at this with me. Consider the people. You've got Lydia. She's wealthy, top of the, the social and economic food chain. This woman from, from modern day Turkey. She's a God-fearer. So she's a Gentile who likes Jewish things and, and she's selling purple cloth. We meet the slave girl who's the opposite end of the economic ladder. She's at the very bottom of their social strata. Another woman who is oppressed by this demon. She's telling the future and, and Paul needs to cast this demon out of her to set her free. And then we meet the jailer. He's, he's Roman, so he's of European descent, a, a, a male. He's, he's a hardened military vet. He's steeped in, in, the, in honor and the Roman way of life. These people could not be more different and what we come to see is they're all included in the story about the, how the Philippian church begins. What we see super clear is the power of God to turn strangers and even people that, that might be enemies, people that might never even interact with one another, turns them into family. The power of gospel has a profound effect on our, our social structures. The power of the gospel has a profound effect on the way that we see and interact and love and care for one another. What we see really clear is how this idea that the gospel is for certain people is just completely dismantled because these people could not be more different, right? So there's no person who the gospel is not for. Doesn't no, matter where you're from, what you've experienced, doesn't matter how much money is in your pocket. Doesn't matter what race or ethnicity you are. Doesn't matter how bad you've been or how little you've been bad. The gospel is a necessity for all people. Because the scripture is really clear that for as different as we are, fundamentally, we are all the same with regard to God. We are on one hand full of dignity and beauty and honor and worth. And yet on the other hand, we are also thoroughly flawed and sinful. The scriptures tell us that even though we all have a variety of struggles, we all undergo all kinds of challenges and we all cause a number of challenges for ourselves and for others, we find that the ultimate problem, the, all of those things are a result of our posture towards God, that we've rebelled against him, that we have sinned against him as the scripture would use that language. And out of that sin flows brokenness, not only in ourselves, but into the world around us. And yet the good news of the gospel this morning is that despite those varied expressions of brokenness, despite how our sin might look different here and there, despite that we are all sinful in the eyes of God, he has sent one solution for us all, the person of Jesus. In Christ, we see that God sent his son to die for us, that we might experience so much of the power of God that we see in this story. We see that when we trust in Jesus, our hearts are transformed from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh so that we can love God and love one another. Hearts that are changed like we see in Lydia. We know that when we trust in Jesus, we are freed from the bondage of sin and we become a people who want to go out into our world and help us, others to experience that freedom as well like we see in the slave girl. And like we see in the jailer who had his allegiance to Rome and had his life absolutely rocked by the mercy of God poured out through Paul and Silas. We believe that when we trust in Jesus, we are forgiven for our sins and we come into a new kingdom 
a kingdom that demands our ultimate allegiance, the kingdom of Christ. The reality is that the gospel is not for a certain type of person. The gospel is a necessity for every single one of us. So the invitation is for us to forsake our sin and to turn to Christ, not just today, but every day. The savior who, who we all need, the savior who we are called to trust in. And the promise of God is as we do that, we are forgiven for sin and we are reconciled in our relationship to him. And we are, are called to go out and make disciples of him as we, as we follow him ourselves. This is a profound story that sets us up for the book, the book of Philippians, as we see how God's power had already moved here. And as Paul writes to this church in Philippi, he is going to call us to follow in the example of Christ as well. So I'm excited about that. Let's take a minute to reflect on the stuff that we have heard, and we will respond with a prayer of confession. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed by the things that we have done and by the things that we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, Lord, would you forgive what we have been. Help us to amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we might delight in your will and walk to your ways all to the glory of your name. And all God's people said, amen.